as you may have gathered, uh, either from the last three weeks of sermons or from Bron reading it to us, we are in our series through the book of Revelation. Um, we are at the moment in the second part of the uh, messages to the seven churches. Uh, we started last week, of course, with the uh, message to the church in Ephesus. Uh, but you might remember from last week, we introduced these messages by pointing out that they are intentionally structured to reflect two forms, two genres uh, that the original readers would likely have recognized, almost certainly have recognized. They are divine oracles, these messages, uh, as the prophetic words of the Old Testament so often begin with the phrase, thus says the Lord. So these begin with thus says, followed by one of the descriptions of Jesus that we found in the vision of chapter one. These are the words of our God. And Jesus is our God. But not just that, they are also royal, they are imperial edicts, uh, reflecting the genre of what uh, Caesar, what Domitian would have sent out at the time to his provinces. Jesus is being revolutionary uh, in the way that he speaks to his people. The Christian faith, rightly understood, can do nothing without being revolutionary. Because the kingdom of the Son of Man, the kingdom of Jesus, will clash with the lesser kingdoms of this world as it is coming in. So as we read these messages, we read them as the words of our God and the words of our King. If you're a follower of Jesus, your first allegiance is not to a nation or to a government, but to Jesus, the true King and the true God. And as we saw last week, these imperial edicts, these divine oracles, they follow a structure and each of them opens with Jesus identifying himself with language that is drawn from the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1. Uh, and the images and the words that he uses, they're purposeful. He does it intentionally. They are what these churches needed to hear. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus and from Jesus. And the greatest need of the church is always, always that we see clearly who Jesus is. And we're going to have a look at what he says to the church in Smyrna, but first we're going to pray. Jesus, would you speak to us through your word today? Show us you. We want to have a clear vision of the one who saves us. We want to have a clear view of the one who is our saviour king. Lord, help us to hear the words of the Bible and the words of this message, not as handy life advice, not as uh, just something optional, but Lord, as the, as the divine oracles of our God, as the uh, edicts of our emperor, the king over all, who loves us and gave himself for us. Speak to us today, Lord, and show us Christ. Amen. So to the church in Smyrna, Jesus writes this. And, and, and look, I'll give you a sec. If you haven't got one, I invite you to get a Bible open. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a, a pile, enormous pile of them on a shelf back there that you're more than welcome to go grab one from. He writes this. He says, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
Jesus is the first and Jesus is the last. Before all other powers and before all other matter, before everything, Jesus was. After time reaches its end, after every empire falls, Jesus will continue on supreme over all of eternity. Jesus died, but death could not hold him down. He has victory over the grave. He came to life. Now, why do you suppose the church in Smyrna needed to hear this, needed to see Jesus in this light? as the one who is the first and the last, as the, as the death conqueror. Why did they need that reminder? Well, because they were facing powers that were pushing down on them, that were pressuring them, powers that seemed supreme over them at the time, and powers that were threatening them with death, and they needed to see things are not as they seem. Let's catch up a little on the situation of Smyrna, shall we? Um, Last week, we looked at the edict to Ephesus, like we said, um, and to the church in Ephesus, rather. Uh, And we saw that Ephesus was a major city with a major church, right? Uh, You know, just just the little catch-up version, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, home of the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the ancient wonders, seven ancient wonders of the world, a uh, a centre of pagan worship towards the emperor and towards the gods, home to the second largest games in the empire, amphitheatre that could carry 24,000 people, which is big, right? Major city, major church, central church of the Christian movement at the time, biblical teaching, steadfast endurance, led by Paul for years, led by Timothy for years, then led by John for years, probably home to Mary, the mother of Jesus for years. Major church, right? But ultimately, a church which Jesus found to be lacking the main thing. He says they have lost their love for him and have become inward looking, become insular and were at risk, according to Jesus, of ceasing to be a church at all. But compare that to Smyrna and you get an interesting comparison. It's interesting that the cities of Smyrna and Ephesus had a lot in common. They were really similar places. Uh, In fact, they were were rival cities, Um, kind of the Yorktown and Minleton of their days, if you will. Uh, No, that undermines the point. Anyway, uh, Smyrna and Ephesus, they competed for being the first city of Asia. Uh, When I say Asia, I don't mean Asia as we mean it today. I mean Turkey or Turkia, if you want to say it, how they've changed it to, which is what the internet told me is how it's pronounced. Um, There are ancient coins from Smyrna, uh, which have written on them, first city of Asia, because they were trying trying to take that title. You know, they were a little bit smaller than Ephesus, They didn't have the whopping great amphitheater, but they were a significant city. They were a famously beautiful city. You know, it comes up in in ancient writers more than once, you know, in people whose writings have survived to this day, that it was a beautiful city. It was a major seaport and so a major trade center. It was famous for medicine, famous for science, famous for wine, famous for wealth. Major trade guilds had centres in Smyrna, and like Ephesus, it was a big centre of worship as well, with temples to Roman emperors and to to temples to the other gods. Smyrna, too, was a major city. But the church in Smyrna was probably not what we would look at and call a major church. 
Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are not Jews, uh, sorry, say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, as we noted earlier in the series, tribulation is something that the revelation of Jesus Christ speaks to a lot. And the, tri- the tribulation, as understood in this revelation, is something which persists from the first coming of Jesus right through to the second coming of Jesus. This church was facing persecution. Daryl Johnson uh, points out that the word tribulation can have the sense of crushing pressure. The powers of this big, impressive city in this big, impressive empire were pressing in on them. And they were just a group of poor, lowly, persecuted Christians, powerless. And even more than that, the the local Jews, we read, were making life difficult for them as well. Uh, If this church followed the same pattern uh, uh, as many other churches in the New Testament did, uh, it probably consisted of both Jewish and Gentile believers. uh, But the local Jews who had not come to Christ, or at least some of them, uh, were making life difficult for these Christians. Most commentators suggest this was an issue of exemptions. Uh, The Jews had an exemption in the Roman Empire from worshipping the emperor and and worshipping the pagan gods. But the exemption could be taken away from them at any time. It was kind of at the whim of the Senate and the emperor. And there's some evidence that the Jews were involved in reporting on Christians in an effort to protect this exemption. Uh, Telling the authorities that these Christians aren't worshipping the emperor. And by by the way, they're not with us, so you don't need to take away our exemption because of that. Right? They, they don't get the exemption. They're not us. It's okay. We're still protected. But ultimately, what we can say definitely is that these Christians had it hard. And that's why they needed the vision of Jesus that we get here. Because when you suffer, you need to see the Jesus who is the first and the last. History is bracketed at both ends and filled in between those two points, not in the powers of the city of Smyrna, not in the government of Rome, not in the government of Australia or the US or China or Russia or Uzbekistan or all of the others, right? Uh, But in the sovereign power and presence and will of Jesus. The beginning and the end and eternity on beyond the end For these Christians, the beginning end of their lives, personally, was not defined by Caesar, but was bracketed in the loving, sovereign presence of Jesus. Things were not as they seemed. They might kill you, but there is one who has overcome the grave, and you can trust in him to carry you through. That's why they needed to see. Now, let's be honest here. We don't particularly know much about persecution here. I mean, like, we, we read about it, sure, um, and, and maybe, you know, watch some stuff about it. But, but um, firsthand, we have a very limited experience. Uh, and what we do know, what we do know usually makes us really uncomfortable. Uh, most of us, I'm, I'm generalizing here, it makes us... Afraid. I feel it too. It's all right. 
let's, let's be honest here. Uh, we can often be so scared of just the idea of persecution that we just want to avoid it at all costs or we deny it. We just go, nah, that'd never happen here. Australia is a Christian country, you know, 48%, right? Um, not really, but, uh, but or, you know, just, just, just avoid thinking about it. Often it's, um, often if that's the case, what, what happens is we slowly cave more and more uh, to the pressure to move away from Jesus over time because we want to avoid the persecution and that kind of becomes the God. That becomes the main thing. And that, that's a real danger for churches and for Christians in Australia. O- often the idea of persecution rules us with self-doubt. Will I bear up if it ever happens to me? Would I be able to remain faithful? Church, it's so important that we actually address this, that we don't shy away from this. Our our nation, as far as I can tell, our nation has become less friendly towards Christians at least every year since I was born. I'm not drawing a connection between those two things. I'm just saying, in my experience. That might change, could well change. Look at the rhythms of history and often... Uh, The society turns against Christ and boom, revival, right? And that could happen, but we're by no means guaranteed that this won't become genuine persecution in our nation. We've got to be ready. I mean, there's no point thinking about buying life jackets once the boat is sinking, right? Isn't there a part of us though, that just thinks that Jesus shouldn't let this happen to us. Um, that he shouldn't let us go through that. And like, I feel that too. But, but look at the church in Smyrna, where Christians were already suffering, poor and slandered. Don't we just want Jesus to tell them that it's just going to get better? You know, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to defeat your enemies and end the pressure. And it's all going to be over tomorrow, by the way. Isn't that what we want Jesus to say to Smyrna? It's not what he says. Sorry to say. Instead, Jesus tells them that it's going to get worse. Some of them will be thrown into prison. To make matters a little bit worse, uh, Jesus tells them that it's not just that the powers of Rome are going to throw them into prison or the Jews are going to throw them into prison. Jesus points out that there's something more at play here. He points out what we already know from the Apostle Paul uh, in Ephesians. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. Jesus says, he says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. This might even lead to death for some of them, he suggests. Satan himself wasn't visibly locking away Christians. You know, if you had a video camera footage of, of Smyrna back in the first century, you wouldn't see the, uh, this, is a, this is a far side Satan. It's not something we see in the Bible, but I'm just going to use it anyway. The horns and the prongs going, kind of get in the cell. No, but this is something we'll see later in the book. Satan manipulates political and religious powers in order to try to destroy God's people. Church, this shouldn't be surprising if we read our Bibles. Paul says in in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. That's a confronting little sentence, isn't it? But still, good to ask, why? 
Why does persecution happen? Why was it going to happen and get worse for Smyrna? Why might it happen and intensify for us? Jesus said in John 15, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Persecution happens, ultimately, persecution happens because we're connected to Jesus. Because of who we serve. Persecution happens because we serve the lamb who was slain. The one who died and behold, he is alive and holds the keys of death. And, and, and that shows us that the path to glory for our saviour was through persecution and death. And so we shouldn't expect a different path for his disciples. But there's more to it than that. Persecution happens as well because in this world, two kingdoms are clashing. There is a kingdom of light which is breaking into this world and there is a kingdom of darkness which is soon to pass away and they don't get along super good. Since the cross and the empty tomb, the reign of King Jesus has been spreading across this world and experienced all across the face of this earth, disrupting the reign of darkness. And where those two kingdoms meet, inevitably there is conflict. How could there not be between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Satan? Where a faithful kingdom flourishes, a faithless kingdom will always push back. Where a kingdom that worships the one God grows, the idols of this world will be threatened and persecution will follow. Where a morally good kingdom flourishes, moral evil will press back against it. Haven't we even seen that? You know, that, that, that goodness threatens badness and makes it feel uncomfortable. That people feel judged simply because someone else holds to a moral standard. Can't remember which author said this, but it's good. When, when light appears in the darkness, the darkness has two options. Flee or try to extinguish the light. Persecution happens because the kingdom of Jesus is spreading across this world. Even now, even here, and the spiritual powers of darkness and any who side with them do not like it. It's amazing, isn't it, that the way that Jesus primarily chooses to overcome this world, to overcome the kingdom of darkness, is not through armies, not through the mighty and powerful by our standards, but through the poor and the weak. Here's something to notice in this passage in, to, to Smyrna. You remember with Ephesus, Jesus said that, um, he, he told them that they had lost their first love. You know, and this was a serious issue. He said, I'm going to come and take away your lampstand. You're going to cease to be a church. And all of the seven churches include a word of correction and of rebuke. Well, all but two of them. The two churches that Jesus gives no correction to are Smyrna, the one we're looking at today, and Philadelphia, which we'll get to in a few weeks' time. These are two churches that Jesus looks at and only has good things to say. 
And you, you might go, oh, well, you know, he was just being nice because they were suffering, all right. But some of the other churches were suffering too. Have a look. But he looks at these two and he only says understanding things. He only has understanding. He only has encouragement. He only has promises for them. And those two are the poorest and the most powerless churches on the list. Church, before we talk more about like, let's recognize something um, that we might find a little bit surprising here. One thing that Philadelphia and Smyrna teach us is that it is false to think that churches are always going to be unhealthy. You know, I think we can sometimes just get our heads into a place of just setting a low bar for what a church should look like because we're like, they're always going to be bad anyway. You know, like sometimes, sometimes we have experiences of a church that we go, you know, that was okay because it wasn't exploding all of the time, maybe. Um, or or that, was, that, was, that was an all right church. They're never going to be good. Um, yeah, I think I think my experience, by and large, in Australia, is of churches riddled with conflict, um, led in a really unhealthy way, or even teaching things that are contrary to the gospel. I'm not just talking about the churches I've been to. I'm not just condemning every church I've ever gone to, but you know, it's it's telling, isn't it? Though that in Revelation two and three, five out of seven are in a bad way. Five out of seven require correction from King Jesus. But two are doing well. Who said the phrase, no such thing as, there's no such thing as a perfect church? I think we have, right? No show of hands, but maybe you're just not listening. It's okay. Sorry. And there isn't, right? That's true. There's no such thing as a perfect, a perfect church. Churches will always have sinners in them. Churches will always have to deal with brokenness. But how, of, how often have we believed that because churches can't be perfect, they can't be healthy? They can't be good. At, a, at Gospel Church, I'm, I'm not holding us up as the ultimate measure here. I'm just using a list that we put a lot of effort into putting together. Um, we have four core values. Uh, we call them uh, Gospel Community Discipleship and Mission. Um, and, and I think we often feel like uh, a church can't have all four of those things well. You know, we're either not a healthy community, you know, we don't get along with each other, or we're not raising up disciples of Jesus who become more like him, or we're doing all of the internal stuff, but we're just not even trying to reach anyone, or, you know, we just lack the gospel. And, and so we've got nothing, ultimately, even if we do any of that other stuff. But, but Smyrna and Philadelphia tell a different story, don't they? Healthiness in the eyes of Jesus will often cost you healthiness in the eyes of the world. These guys were poor. These guys, no one was looking at them from the outside in their cities and going, wow, those guys have got it going on. They were going, wow, those guys have got dysentery. Um, they probably didn't have that word, but it's okay. And so Jesus, coming back to the passage now, Jesus gives this church two commands. Do not fear, be faithful. Do not fear what you are about to suffer and be faithful unto death, he says. An effective, healthy church. The sort of church that Jesus uses to overcome the kingdom of darkness 
and to establish his kingdom in this world. The sort of church that Jesus has no word of rebuke for. Basically, the sort of church we want to be, right? Is not established through excessive wealth or prosperity. You can have money. Nothing wrong with having money. Don't trust it. It's not established through excellent marketing, through a wonderful website and a great presence on social media, great Insta videos. Websites, socials, they can be used for good, but Jesus doesn't need them. It's not established by being influential and having important members of the community in attendance at the church. Now, the sort of, Jesus, uh, sort of church that Jesus has no word of rebuke for is characterized just by faithfulness to him. Faithfulness to Jesus, which casts out fear. Understand, when he says, be faithful, he's not talking about it in the sense that we use faithful when we talk about a dog, uh, in the sense of, you know, he's, just, he's, he's trustworthy, he does what he should do. Um, there's a sense of that there, but, but this is filled with faith. In Jesus, filled with trust in Jesus, faithful to him because our faith is in him. A healthy church trusts Jesus. You might recall at the start of this series, I made the kind of bold claim that the Revelation, this book that most of us have, a lot of us have probably been a bit scared to even go near, is re relevant, very relevant for us today that it has a message which we need to hear. And here we see uh, something of the relevance of Revelation and of that message of Revelation. Church, does the idea of persecution scare you? Does the pressure of this world scare you? Let me ask it a different way. Does the idea that if you speak to someone about Jesus, they might push back. They might resent you. They might think worse of you, maybe even speak harshly to you or never speak to you again. Does that idea scare you? Does the idea of that keep you silent? The edict for the church in Smyrna has a message for you. Fear not, believe. Do not fear not because that won't happen. Remember Smyrna? He's just, he, do not fear, it's going to get worse, right? Often, often it won't happen, by the by. Often the expectation is worse than the reality. Often we're a bit like kids when they come into the clinic for needles and like, they're like, oh, it's going to be the worst thing ever. And then you do, and they're like, oh, a balloon. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and we share the gospel with someone and we're like, oh man, they're just going to hate me for this. It's going to be the worst. And I just feel so worried. I've got this tight knot in my stomach about it. And, and they're willing to talk and they're keen to chat and you have a good conversation about Jesus and, and you're like, oh, oh, okay, this can happen. But, but if you share the good news faithfully for long enough, someone's going to push back and not like you for it eventually. That's true. Do not fear. Not because that won't happen, but because of who your faith is in. So important that our eyes are on Jesus. We don't, we don't just read the word because it's a good thing to do that will make me a better person. You know, this, this 
will make you a better person, but it is not a self-help manual. We read it because, is, because in, in it, we see Jesus. And there, I am led to trust him more deeply. And only when my eyes are on him, when my focus is on him and my joy is in him, only then will I be faithful in witness. It's like that song we sang earlier on, right? The pain will not define us. Joy will reignite us, our joy in Jesus. Only then will we be faithful witnesses. Church, there is a wrong way and a right way to combat fear of persecution. Don't we see the wrong way so often, right? So, so often we see churches and Christians who turn to either compromise or to pride in order to ward off persecution. I think these are the ones I see most often anyway. Either the teaching of the church or the beliefs of the Christian uh, compromise so heavily with the world that it ceases to be about the gospel at all, to avoid suffering. We keep cutting off little edges here and there, going, okay, we probably didn't need that bit, uh, until the faith is a feeling, and it's one that I can keep at home in a little box that never changes anything in my life, let alone this world. Or we try to beat the world at its own game. Be powerful. Be influential. They, they, think, they think they can have control over politics? Check it out. We got politicians too. They think they've got influential people? Check it out. We got influential people in our church. Boom. Take that world. Now, we want influential people to come to faith. Don't get me wrong here. But Jesus, Jesus just gently takes our hand and he says, don't fear. Those are, those are driven by fear, those reactions. Don't fear. Be faithful. Believe. The right way to first face persecution is to keep our eyes faithfully on the one who will get us through. Who can get us even through death. To keep our eyes on the unseen realities of the present and the future, which will get us through. So for most of the remainder of today, our time today, I, I just want to focus in on three unseen realities which Jesus gives to the church in Smyrna to believe. Which if we believe them, if we grasp them, they will lead us to be faithful in witness through every season, even in the face of persecution. So, reality number one. Believe that the pressure is purposeful. Jesus says something pretty astounding here. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now notice, Satan isn't throwing him into jail in order that he can test them. He's not going, oh, well, look, I'll make sure this one's a genuine Christian. Do, do God a favor. No, he's doing it to destroy and to deject them, right? What Satan means for evil, God will still use for good. That word test 
there. It doesn't just imply checking your faith. It implies growing your faith, purifying your faith. Aren't some of the most incredible believers that you know the ones who have suffered and who have found that God is faithful so they can be faithful to him? I don't think we should go looking for trouble, church. Uh, that, that would be the wrong way to read this. But at the same time, when we think of it like this, isn't it just a little bit exciting to think what Jesus might bring of it? How he might grow us? What the church might look like in 10 years' time? Remember the, the day that Satan crushed the Son of God, the greatest day of victory and of persecution, was the day that Satan himself was ultimately defeated. Reality number two, believe that the pressure is not outside of God's sovereign plan. Jesus says, for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, remember, this is an apocalyptic letter. The numbers in the Revelation are almost always symbolic numbers. They tell us something, but they don't tell us a specific timeline usually. And 10 is a number we're going to keep running into, and the multiples of 10 again and again and again, it indicates completeness, sort of in a similar way to how 7 does. So Jesus is not promising that there will be persecution for exactly 10 days, and then it's going to be over, and you guys are going to be cool. Uh, rather, he is promising that it will have its complete time and no more. What, what's the point? Here's the point. The suffering of God's people is not outside of his sovereign plan. I am the first and the last, Jesus said to them, right? Over all history, he is sovereign and working out his purposes. And so even though evil persists in the world, its effects on God's people are limited by his will. Now this truth was true at the cross, right? Jesus died a horrible death but God was in sovereign control, and so he could press on, and so can we. Reality three, believe that this is destined for glory. On some of the coins of the city of Smyrna that still exist to today, uh, a goddess is pictured, like the, the head of a goddess, and she's wearing a crown made out of city battlements uh, around her head. The, the, the buildings around the top of Mount Pagos, Pagos I don't know, in Smyrna were said to look like a crown on the city. And uh, Jesus says to these poor, downtrodden Christians, this is not how it ends. I am the first and the last. I died and I am alive. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Against the crowns that this world has to offer, Jesus assures his faithful people that he will give them the only crown that actually matters. The only one worth anything, ultimately. These Christians who were pressured and poor because of their faith have this sure and certain hope Faithfulness might bring poverty and pressure, but that's not the end of it. It ends with a crown. It ends with life. 
Jesus says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Here is the scene reality, right? Here's a scene reality we all know about. There is a first death. Everyone's going to die. No matter what we do, all pass through that death. The statistics are blindingly clear. Here's an unseen reality. There is a second death, a greater death, an eternal death. And faithfulness, even to the point of the first death, which you're going to have to go through anyway, leads to victory over the second death. It is the only way. Church, this might seem challenging for us, and maybe it has to be. The the edict to Smyrna cries out to us, things are not as they seem. Small churches can be very significant. Poor churches, lowly Christians... Christians in, in small towns can be significant if, if, if a church as small and as dejected as the church in Smyrna was significant. It can be significant in the eyes of Jesus. The only eyes that matter. And even if they are downtrodden or excluded or persecuted, there is a deeper reality. Life is awaiting us. The question which Revelation asks again and again and again and which we will end with today is, what do you see? Which vision of reality do you choose to live by? Do you choose to make your priorities by? Which vision of reality will you choose? Will you go after the crowns of this world? Will you spend your life pursuing what the world can give? Spend your life for the approval of the world. Spend your life for things that look so impressive and will all ultimately be taken away. Or will you be faithful to Jesus? No matter what the world throws at you. Will you be poor in the eyes of the world, but Jesus will be able to look at you and say, but you are rich. Because he's in control. He's the first and the last. He will give you victory over the second death. Church, let me leave you with a practical question here. How might Jesus be calling you to step out in faithfulness this week? Lifetimes, lifetimes can be a bit intimidating. Just bring bring it into the next seven days. Small choices lead to lifetimes. How might the vision of Jesus as the first and the last who died and who is alive call you to live faithfully this week? Does it look like acknowledging where you've gone wrong and choosing to trust in Jesus again? Acknowledge sin that has been stealing your affections, taking your heart. Bring it to the cross of Jesus and believe in the one who has overcome for you. Does it look like, does it look like finding those times to set your faith on Jesus in this week? To read the word, to pray to him, to talk to a mentor or to a friend or find someone to talk to about him and grow in faith in him in this way. Set your eyes on him. Does it look like taking that step of faith with that friend or that colleague or that person who needs to know about Jesus and just asking them, being bold and asking if you can talk to them about something that's important to you. 
Do not fear. Be faithful. Jesus is worthy of your trust. Whatever it is, let me invite you now as, as we pray to bring this to the Lord and ask how he is calling you to live as one of his faithful. What I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to open prayer and then I'm going to give you a minute just to quietly pray between you and God and ask him how he's calling you into a deeper faithfulness. And then I'll close up after a minute, okay? Jesus, you are the first and you are the last. We acknowledge you are the one who died and you are alive. And only you offer the crown of life. Only you offer victory over the second death. So Lord, now would you show us how you're calling us into faithfulness? Would you overcome our fears and lead us to be a people who walk faithfully before you? Lord, speak to your people now. Lord Jesus, you are the one who walks with us. The first and the last is also at every, every point in between. You are by our side. You are among your churches. You are here in our midst right now. We pray that as we cry out, as we pray in silence as well, that you would honour that, that you would be at work in our hearts and our lives and lead us to be a people Move to faithfulness by the goodness of our God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.